You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey folks, it's me, Bart Campolo, here to welcome you back to Humanize Me. And, uh, and, and you know, this, this is my podcast. And so you would think that I would be good at introducing it. But while you are listening to me now, what you are not listening to are the 15 times I've tried to do this introduction. And so this time, I'm going to plow through it, even if I say something stupid. I'm going to plow through it. But, but here's the deal. I am both exhausted and excited today. I mean, in kind of in equal measures and kind of both in a good way. I, the, I'm exhausted because, as, as many of you know, I do a lot of counseling and coaching of, of folks via Skype. In fact, a lot of people that come to me for that kind of support are people that hear the podcast and they go like, I've got an issue or there's something going on in my life and they're looking for somebody to kind of work things through with. And I do a lot of that stuff, trying to help people figure out who are stuck in something, how to move forward or who are trying to work through a relational issue, how to make sense of it. Um, In some ways, I feel like I'm less of a coach and more of a professional friend sometimes. And, you know, sometimes you just talk to somebody one or two times because they're they're, they're just trying to work something through and they just need a different angle on it. Some people I work with over a long period of time. um, But I end up just loving everybody that I end up in these conversations with. They're, They're just so real and authentic and... And there's kind of a freedom in it because we both know why we're there and what we're there to work on. And it's just it's just amazing. But like sometimes at the end of the week, I realize, man, I've talked to a lot of people about a lot of heavy stuff. And it's just such a privilege. And so like I'm an extrovert, so I gain energy from it. But in the end, even if you're gaining energy, you still end up sort of like physically exhausted even though you're exhilarated. And this has been one of those weeks where I've talked with people about so many heavy, important things. I feel like so many good things have come out of those conversations, but I'm just tired. And, uh, and so I almost went to bed, but I thought, no, I, I want to get this intro done because I want to get you to this conversation because that's the part I'm excited about. Um, and, and by the way, if you're interested in the counseling and coaching, or if you know somebody who you're like, they need to talk to somebody who kind of gets it when it comes to this faith stuff versus, you know, like this, like I used to believe and now I don't. And how do I make sense of life on the other side? Or when they're they're in a difficult relationship with somebody who's a person of faith, a parent or a spouse. Like, yeah, like send them my way. I'm pretty good at that stuff. And it's, and it's a joy to be involved. So if you're interested in that, go to bartcampolo.org. There's all that stuff there. Um, so that's the exhausted part in a good way and the excited part is this I had this conversation with Vanessa Zoltan and uh, Vanessa and a couple of her friends run a website called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text and it is based on some work she did at Harvard Divinity School and at the Humanist Hub at Harvard and she ended up starting basically what would be like it would seem like a Bible study instead of a bunch of Christians studying the Bible they were a bunch of secular humanists studying Harry Potter books. 
and they figured out a way to sort of go, listen, any book that has depth and meaning to it, any book that can be interpreted different ways by different people can be used the way Christians use a Bible or Jews use, uh, the, you know, the, the Torah or, 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 or Muslims use the Quran as a kind of a jumping off point for a conversation about goodness or a, a conversation about morality or a conversation about how to live a good life. And so they, they took a bunch of the sort of techniques of Lectio Divina and other Bible study stuff and they applied it to Harry Potter to see if that could lead them into great conversations and it did. And now she's got a podcast about it um, which you can find at Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Um, so you can sort of you can sort of piggyback on the conversations that she's having but more importantly she's teaching people how to start like reading groups that are that end up being kind of fellowship groups. And I'm so excited because like, this is one of the most practical community building ideas I've come across ever, especially for people who aren't upfront leaders or who don't even feel like they don't want to boldly proclaim themselves as atheists and hang up a sign that says, come to my atheist, you know, fellowship group. But they want to get together with people and, and meaningfully connect. And Vanessa, like this conversation I had with her, I was like, oh my gosh, almost everybody I know, even if you're in one of those big Sunday assembly things, you could start a small group to do this and, and it would be a way in to really connect with other people uh, around values in a way that would make you feel less alone and make you feel more inspired. And 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 so I, I, I found out about it and I reached out to her and said, hey, will you talk to me? And like often happens in these calls, we became fast friends. And I think when you listen to the conversation, you're going to go like, oh man, she's easy to like. But the other thing is, is if you are feeling like you wish you were part of something, but you don't know how to get it started, I think this may be a way in. And and don't, and, and if you're not a Harry Potter person, that ain't the point. Because like this, will, this stuff will work with any book. Um, so... So listen, I'm not. I'm, instead of me telling you about the conversation, let me just let me just bring her on. Let me let, let me just let me say like here it here it is. This is me and Vanessa. I'll hit you back on the other side, and I'll have a cool Ingersoll quote for you there. All right, here's me and Vanessa Zoltan. Go. I was born in L.A., so you're in my hometown. Where? Um, I was born in the Valley. Okay. Van Nuys, and um. Yeah, went to school in LA and then went off to college. I was an English major. Where did you Where did you go? I went to Boulder and then I transferred to WashU. Okay. So um, and, and studied then, and studied English literature. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and was going to work in education, and so um, I did that. I like saved up to move to New York. Moved to New York. And then worked in an education nonprofit for several years and then moved. My father was in poor health. And so I moved home for a year and I taught at just like a Jewish private school for that year and used the time to save up to go to grad school. And I went to the University of Pennsylvania to get my master's in nonprofit management. And that on some level went really well and on some level went horribly wrong. Um, 
it is what got me to divinity school. I, I like did not like business school and, um, well, and if you're not going to like business school, the Wharton business school is the school you're going to really not like. Yeah, but it was the social enterprise nonprofit management program. So there were only 14 of us in the program. And, and, they, sh- and, and, by, and, and they should have been all super cool. Yeah. Were they not? No. I'm sorry. Some of them some of them were wonderful. They're all like lovely human beings. It's not that they weren't cool. It's that I just I think I was a real thorn in their side. And I mean there was one conversation we were taking our fundraising class and this has sort of become like the moment that I'm like, oh, I was different. Um, and we were learning Philip Morris had just released like that they had to pay something like $300 million. Like Congress made them donate this money. And we were learning how we were talking about ways to fill out the Philip Morris grant. And I was like, how cool would it be if we like organized all nonprofits to reject the money? And then Philip Morris would be in contempt of Congress. And like we said, we like don't want dirty money. And Everybody was like, shut up. We're trying to, I mean, they weren't like, shut up, but they were like, stop. This is derailing the conversation. You always derail these conversations. Like we want to learn how to apply for this money. And that is completely fair. Like they were trying to learn how to like run nonprofits. And I was just you were trying to, to figure out the meaning of like how to live a right life. Right. And yeah. so I ended up. I ended up not doing, um, I ended up getting the organization that I was doing field ed for in trouble because <laughs> I was like, they're terrible at this. And then I said, I was a real jerk. I was young. And, um, and so I got to write a thesis instead. And I wrote my thesis on whether or not Jesus would work for a nonprofit. And the conclusion I came to was that he wouldn't and that like no radical person would go and work for a nonprofit. So I went back and then I was just like so poor and I graduated in 2009. And so like the world had collapsed. And so I moved back to New York to my old job at the education nonprofit for two more years, three more years and applied to come to HDS and got to HDS and was like, yes, these are my people. Yes, totally makes sense. Okay, yeah. so, so in that process, though, when you're writing the paper about Jesus and mm. and then you're teaching at the Jewish school, yeah, like, are you Jewish? Are you a Messianic yeah. Jew? Like, like, what, what's your spirit? Like, overlay the spiritual journey onto that story. Yeah, I my I feel like my spirituality has pretty much stayed the same. I've like. We were raised conservative Jewish, um, but atheists because all four of my grandparents are Holocaust survivors and like God died in the camps or before the camps, whatever, you know? Yeah, sure. And like, that was it. Um, but my parents, I mean, I would say it was like more than culturally Jewish. It was like culturally my, all of my extended family is Orthodox. I'm my brothers and I are the only kids who's has both sets of grandparents as Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. So I feel like that sort of messed with us. And then my, my first cousins were also conservative, but everybody else is like super Orthodox. And so it was, you know, we would like go to cousins for Shabbat and sleep over and like do the full Shabbat. You know, we did. So it wasn't just cultural. It was like 
it wasn't cultural Jewish in the like bagels and locks way. It was like cultural Jewish in that we still went to temple every Friday night. We got bar and bat mitzvah. We went. It was like, it was like you were permanent expatriates. Like you were living in that country, even though you weren't citizens. Exactly. So it was, that's very well said. So yeah. So, and then, so yeah, I'm like super Jewish. We, (laughs) I, I like take care of my dog in a Jewish way, right? You feed your dog before you feed yourself according to halacha, to Jewish law. And so I always feed my dog before I feed myself. So like everything is Jewish. Yeah. I just you don't believe in God. Right. And, and, and never did. No, yeah. never did. See, like that's, I mean, that's, and that's the thing. Like if you, I, I, I mean, I was just out with dinner with an old friend last night and he was, he was like, okay, but how did it actually end? Like the, yeah. the transitions are these kind of tectonic events in some of our lives. And uh, in some ways I'm really, I, I, I envy my friends who never transitioned or never had. And in other ways, I sort of, I'm sorry for you because there's something about understanding life on the other side yeah. that, that really, if you want to be a compassionate person, it, it helps. Um, yeah. And so, but okay. So you, so you grow up there. So then you're, so you're writing the paper in graduate school about Jesus just because Jesus is this like symbolically radical guy. Right. Um, right. And then, and then who puts the idea in your head to go to divinity school? So I like knew a couple of awesome people who went to HDS. I had, so I had this professor, Andrew Lamas at Penn, who was like super encouraging of me being like off track with the rest of my peers and, um, like just did an independent study with me. And he taught a religion and critical theory class. And I took that and I don't even think that the seed was planted. I just kept meeting amazing people who went to HDS. And then the more I thought about it, the more like every sort of historically radical person who I admired was like in constant conversation with religion. Yeah. Um, and I was like, Oh, right. Like from Martin Luther King to Louisa May Alcott to like Virginia Woolf is this like great atheist, but she was like constantly in conversation with the church. Um, so, I mean, just sort of everyone who I really admire, Gandhi, Emerson, yeah. you know, they in literature, are, anyway, I mean, everybody's obsessed with life's ultimate questions. Right. Where do we come and, from? What happens when we die? What's, you know, what makes a life good? And, you know, right. I mean, it's funny. I'm just reading right now that when breath becomes air thing or when. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's just a surgeon and he goes into medicine basically trying to answer life's ultimate questions about death and life and meaning. And you just go like, yeah, that those are the questions that, and, and there, I always think like those are religious questions. Yeah. And I think that theology has great answers to these questions. So I've gotten much more comfortable with God language since I've come to HDS because I've met a lot of ministers who, when they talk about God, I'm like, Oh, I like that God. I just don't believe in, I think that the afterlife is a tool of oppression. And I think that I don't like the idea of divine intervention. Um, but like a God who's like, who you can be in conversation with, or, you know, I, I do, I'm in conversation with literature 
and that's how I practice a spiritual life. And I'm in conversation with certain mentors, but being in conversation with God is something that makes complete sense to me. Um, I just, is if that's well, the word, I mean, I, again, like it's, what, it's all what you mean by that word, right? It's you know? semantics, yeah. but there's certain people who talk about God and I'm like, Oh, sure. That one. Sure. No, I had a guy, I had a guy on the podcast uh, a few months ago and he, he talked about God and he spells it G O D D E. Yeah. And he just means reality. And he's like, we're all in a wrong relationship with reality. And my religion is about trying to get us into right relationship with reality. And, um, and, 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 you know, so, so, you know, and I just thought, okay, it, you know, w w w when you say God, I mean, the reason I can't use that language anymore has nothing, it's not personal at all. It's that there's this whole realm of people that yeah. I feel like are sheep without a shepherd that they're yeah. like looking for tribe, looking for community. And if I use that language, they won't see me. Yeah. And so I, I you know, so like, I, I'm like, there all the people that want to use that language in, in clever ways. I'm like. There's so many options for y'all. You have Rob Bell, you have, yeah. uh, you have, you have Oprah, you have all these people that will like repackage spiritual re repackage, um, God and even Christianity in a way that will work for you. These other people don't seem to have anybody. Yeah. So that's why, like, I'm just like, I'm going to use language that makes sense to them. Yep. And I, that's why one of the things I say is that like, depending on the, I'm an atheist for political reasons, right? Like, I'm like, the church does not account for certain people. And I will stand with the people who are not accounted for in like theological realms. Right. And I, I like really so hate it like you're an atheist for solidarity purposes. Yeah. For yeah. solidarity. And for, I, and yeah, I mean, in my, in solidarity, but also like a personal legacy, right? Like there are oftentimes where Jews are unaccounted for in like people's conception of who is protected by God. And I'm so anyway, I I'm an atheist for those reasons. And also like, I think that God is a really triggering word for a lot of people. Yeah. And I'm like, those are my people. So I won't in HDS land. I'm, I love God. And then like out in the world, I'm like, no, not that God. And, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is my, I, I've been at USC for three years Yeah. and my secular student fellowship is the most wonderful group of human beings you could imagine. They're just, yeah. I love these people. And the young woman who the first student I ever met at USC was the, was the president of the little atheist club mm -hmm. that we collect she and I together subverted and turned into the secular student fellowship, which is this beautiful, big thing. Anyway, she is coming to HDS in the fall. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, and her goal is to kind of learn all the stuff that she needs to learn. And, and de I mean, cause she was an engineer. Like she's, oh, she's, she, cool. she doesn't come from any literary or religious background. She's just got, she, she's, a, she's a, a just a, an amazing community builder mm -hmm. and a natural, but she's coming to HDS so that like, by the time she graduates, I'm hoping that we'll have an actual, like the humanist chaplaincy at USC will be a thing that can hire her to be the humanist chaplain. Yeah. Um, uh, and so 
anyway, I, I, she's just, I, I'm glad you're still connected there because you will be a great person for her to meet. Oh, well, definitely. I mean, definitely put us in touch. I would love to meet yeah. her. Her name, so- her name is Allison and, and she's just, she's just a dazzler. Um, um, and, uh, so, so, th- so then you end up at HDS mm-hmm. and do you have any idea when you're at HDS, what you're training to do? Yeah, I was training to become a hospital chaplain. Okay. Um, and prison chaplain. So I did a unit of clinical pastoral education at a hospital and I did, um, chaplaincy at a prison out here in Framingham. And, um, yeah. And then I was interested in treating literature as a sacred text and potentially starting like learning circles in prisons and chemo lounges and various things. Um, and then that became the treating secular texts as if they were sacred became its own thing. So I'm doing my second unit of clinical pastoral education at a hospital starting this fall, but the hospital thing has been, is slower than I thought it would be. And at some point in this journey, you did start going over and working with Greg at the humanist hub. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's funny. I just yesterday had a great conversation with um, a, a friend named Jason Callahan. Does that name ring a bell with you? Um, I think, yes. Is he the one who's working with prison chaplains? He's a hospital chaplain. He's a hospital but chaplain. But he is the not, first. Not prison, sorry. Um, Army. No, no, no. That's Jason Torpy. I know that guy too. Uh, that's another Jason. Jason sorry. Callahan is, I, I mean, like, he's a hidden treasure. I mean, I'm, like, like, I'm so excited about I, I met him on an NPR podcast and then I call, I was so excited by him that I called him and, and we spent an hour talking. He's just, uh, he's everything uh, I like. Um, but he is, um, he's the first hospital chaplain who's certified. Like he's a member of, he's a board certified by the, as a humanist chaplain. How did I need to talk to him? Because that that's yeah. actually a super complicated thing that he pulled off. Yeah, yeah, and and he's and he's positively evangelical about getting more humanist chaplains. And one of the things that he he says is is that he knows tons of chaplains that are humanists, but yeah. that register as other things. Yeah, you so have that, so that they can get in. Yep. And so exactly. so anyway, I will introduce you to him. But like he yeah. was, but one of the interesting things about him is. All through his life, he's never been a joiner. Yeah. And he's always kicked against the spurs. And he didn't want to be a, a pastor. He didn't want to be a community building guy because he's like, I'm not really an organizer. Like, you know, being a hospital chaplain is perfect for him because he's like, I don't represent anything but myself. Yeah. And, and I bent, I wrap myself around whoever's in front of me and then I, I serve them and then they're gone and I move on to the next person. And so he's perfectly suited to be a hospital chaplain. Um, and that's how I feel. Like I loved working at the hub. I worked at the hub for three and a half years and I learned so much and met so many amazing people and I am in no way built to be a congregational chaplain. Yeah. You're not a, you're not a, you're not a, a DJ who likes to like keep the party going for everybody else. 
no, I'm the last person to arrive at the party, but I make up for it by being the first person to leave the party. (laughs) Like that is like, I, so this is where you and I, this is where you and I, like we, we, I think intellectually and, and emotionally we have a lot in common and this is where temperamentally we just part company because that's my whole gig. Yeah, no. And I, look at people like you. And I think I've just realized in working with Casper Trakaya, my partner on the podcast, cause he is like you, he gets energy. Like he leaves a live show and is like ready to like go do more work and conquer the world. I leave a live show and I'm like, I need to go sleep for three days. Right, right. And I love it. I just then need to go sleep for three days. And I used to think he was a better person than I am. And now I'm just like, no, I want to go home and like, right. I have other skills, Yeah. but you guys, I think like your energy level is amazing. It's just not something I am capable of. Well, I mean, actually your energy level is fine. It's just that you're energized by interacting with that book or you're energized yeah. by writing. And right. I'm, ex- I, I love to write, but I'm exhausted at the end of it. Right. Whereas and I people give me energy. Yeah. And like reading and writing is what gives me energy. And, you know, I, and I did this conversation with a guy named Hank Green, who is a very. I listened to that episode and we just had Hank on the phone too. Oh, wow. Oh, he was just on our show. So, but... so, so you probably like when I talk with him, that was the thing. Like a, a lot of people have said to me what they dug was these two people sort of going like, I'm glad you're in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys did. And you're not like me. This other work. And he's like, right. I'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing because I would never do that in a million years. Yeah. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's fun. So, so here's the thing though. I, one of my obsessions is trying to get people to create c- communities yeah. for people who want to pursue goodness in a secular way. Yeah. You know, value, like value driven communities, people, because I'm convinced that people can adopt these wonderful values that everybody's talking about and they won't live them out. It's like saying like, I'm committed to exercise, but you won't do it unless you're with a group of people that support you and affirm you. And it's, you know, being a good person is, is a team sport. Yep. Like it's a collective act. And so because I believe that so strongly, I'm obsessed with getting people to start these things. And, and, you know, I come from this evangelical background, so I tend to like my communities look a lot like youth groups for everybody. You know, like we sing, we play, we play games, we eat food together, we go on missions trips, Um, you know, and, and one of the most important, and, and, and I mean, I actually even am trying to teach some of my young people to pray. Yeah. Even though they're not praying to anybody, because I'm like, God doesn't do anything. But prayer actually does change you and it changes the world in a weird way. I agree. And so have you read TM Lerman's book about that? No. Oh, it's fantastic. I have to look. (laughs) It's uh I'm looking. It's she's amazing. She's um an anthropologist. When God talks back is what it's called. And it's she's an anthropologist by training, but um it's about um religious prayer, but she does all sorts of studies about the way that prayer impacts your life, like neuro neurologically and like all the things that we and, know. And as a but, community builder, one of the things I can tell you is, is that when I say to you, I'm going to pray about that. 
or when or when I say like, look, I, I I know you're sick, and I just say out loud like, I just want you to know, I really hope that you get better, and I really I really hope that if there's any way I can be helpful to you, I hope you'll let me know that like that the act of saying out loud like of speaking my noblest desire in words creates a bond between us where you go like or if i say to you i will be praying for you tonight yeah it, and and so the act of praying creates a connection where you go like there's somebody out there thinking about me and i think i think two things one well three things because one yes but two, I think then going and praying about the person also keeps that person on your mind. And so maybe it'll occur to you one of the things that you can do to, for that person without them having to ask. That's exactly if, right. That, that, that's if you didn't say it out loud and didn't commit to it, you wouldn't go home and then really think about that person. And so you wouldn't be spurred to action. I mean, you have like, I, I bought a uh, Dodge Coronet when I was a kid. And I had mm. never seen one before, but this uh, car dealer, you know, who was a friend of mine, sold me this car. All of a sudden, I'm seeing Dodge Coronets everywhere. Right, exactly. Because it's it, because I fixed it in my mind, and now I see them. And you go like, if I pray for you, I'm going to see ways to love you all around me that I didn't see because I wasn't I I hadn't fixed you in my brain that way. I have a very creepy wall by my bed of like photos of all of my friends and family. Yeah. And I like Ariana and Casper are not on that wall because they have become very important to me in like the last year. And I just printed photos of them to put them on my wall because I fall asleep at night looking at this wall. And it's a way for me to like Keep sort of meditate of, on like all of the people who I love and yeah. be like, you know, I haven't spoken to Jen in a few weeks. Like I should check in on her. Like, yeah, it is absolutely like a religious ritual. For and, me. And, you know, and you don't want to get me started on the problems I have with social media and Facebook. Right. But, but one of like, cause I have a million of them. Yeah, we all do. But one of them is that it hijacks the part of your life that volitionally decides who you're going to think about. Mm. Um, and it prays for you and it, uh, about very unrealistic things that have nothing to do with the reality of your life and the people, even the reality of the people that you're seeing on Facebook. Right. And so, and so I, I'm, you know, one of the, the wall that you've created is to me, it, 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 it leaves room for your actual brain to do the work. Right. And it's, I mean, like it, it, I feel like it's a little bit creepy because I have just like this wall of people who watch me sleep. But that also feels like a blessing on me, right? Like Angels watching over me. Exactly. It's like a little cross above my bed. <laughs> so, All so, the people who I love and who love me. So I, I'm trying to think how I got over. Oh, oh, so I'm saying like, so I'm trying to help people build these communities. And yeah. literally down to the point where like I talked to them about like, here's how you invite people. Here's yeah, yeah, yeah. You, here's how you welcome them. Here's what you don't yeah. call it. Like right. when you're getting your, your starter team together, like don't have a manifesto that you hand to them at the beginning where you tell them this is what it's going to be like, because then they won't buy, like you have to create that together. And, you know, you know, so I've got all, yeah. but one of the things that constantly comes up is people need these rituals. Yeah. And, and, and I'm like, you can't just invent them. They have to emerge naturally, but 
there are the, like prayer is one of those things that like it was invented because people had this desperate need to when they were helpless to do something. Yeah. And Bible study was invented because people had this desperate need to have external input or to hear the voice of God. Yeah. To to have something that says to them, "Hey, think about this. Hey, do this." Or but like it it could, you know, and so this idea of a sacred text I think it's just sort of, it's just, it's so natural to us. Yeah. Um, I mean, it and, came. And oh, that's sorry. What, and, and, and so what I perceive, this is, this is my lead in for you to just talk. Okay. My <laughs> lead in is I perceive that you figured out that even if you don't believe in God, you need, you need to interact with a text. Yeah. I mean, I definitely do. And go, I think, go. <laughs> yeah, go. Um, I, I mean, I think, I mean, to your Facebook point, I think that we all interact with texts and it's about picking our text, right? Like we're all in a very sacred ritualistic relationship with our phones. Uh, whether or not that's a good relationship for us is under question. But no, I mean, like the sort of like story that I've talked about is that I went through a bad breakup and I, I didn't you know, it was like three in the morning by the time it ended. And I like, didn't know what to do with my body. And I reached for my favorite book. Cause I know it so well that like I could sort of tune in now and it like spoke to me and then it didn't. And I just want everybody to have something that they can grab it to exactly to your point of like in moments when of desperation, right. And God is not that thing for a lot of people and the Bible is not that thing for a lot of people. So I think you can pick your sacred text. Well, you know, and, and, and again, like the word sacred is so loaded for some people. Yes. That what I tend to think, what I think your meaning is, is that it's, it's almost like um, when you get a bunch of people together and like a collective vibe emerges and you go like, Ooh, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Like there's a mob mentality or there's a collective, you know, you're at a U2 concert and you're like, something's happening here. Yeah. Um, and you know, neurologically and like phenomenologically, we can talk about why that happens, but that something happens between us that is bigger than just both of us. Right. And I think that what you're talking about when you say a sacred text is a, if I, if I understand you right, it's where the, your interaction with the book, something emerges where it's almost like there's what the book's saying and there's what you're thinking. And then there's this, it's almost like out of that chemistry, something emerges like a message or a thought that you're like, that isn't my thought. And that isn't exactly what the book is saying. Right. But like I'm getting this. I think what this means to me in this moment is this. Yeah. So what we... What we say is that um, having treating a text as sacred requires three things. The first is that you have to have faith that the more time you spend with the text, the more gifts it will give you. So that, you know, I mean, just like with people, time builds relationship um, with the text. You just have to really believe that that time with the text is a blessing, even when you're coming up against rough things, even when you're like, why in Harry Potter 
does McGonagall kick out all the Slytherins at the end of the book? Like, isn't that, you know, tribalism and terrible, but that thinking about that more is going to be a gift to you. And then the second thing that we say is required is a commitment to rigor. So we use traditionally sacred practices of like Lectio Divina and Pardes and Florilegia. Okay, and stop, like, stop, stop. Mm-hmm. Explain Lectio Divina because nobody listening to my podcast knows what that is. <laughs> nobody anywhere knows what it is. So we use these, we've done research and trained at the Divinity School to use sacred practices um, so for like Lectio Divina, which is a four stage reading practice that is about 800 years old. It goes back to Carthusian monks. And the idea, if you were doing it traditionally, the idea is that you can read, which leads to meditating, which leads to contemplation, which leads to God. We do it that um, stage one is asking yourself what's literally going on in the text. Stage two is asking what's allegorically going on in the text. What other stories does this remind me of? Um, stage three is asking what is the text speaking to me in my life right now? And stage four is what action do I feel compelled to do now that I've like gone through this process? And we really try to encourage people to do very specific actions because Often we feel compelled at the end of like a really intense conversation to be like, I'm going to be a more trusting person. And like you said, with exercise partners, it's like, that is just too big of a goal. That would be like saying, I'm going to be an, you know, a fit person. Yeah. And it's like set a goal of like being able to run a 10 minute mile. Right. Or I'm going to walk around the block today. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And so we're like, what is something that you can accomplish in the next week. And so it's like, I'm going to call my grandpa is like a good. Now, now, now me, me, if I understand you right, cause my wife did Lectio Divina for like 10 years with a, oh, that's awesome. but it was every week with a group of friends. Yep. It was a group thing. And, yep. and, and when they would, each of them would say like, this is what the text, I think the text is saying. And then they would read it again. And then they'd go like, this is what I think it's saying to me. Mm-hmm. But what they weren't allowed to do was to teach each other. Like, yeah, this is what I think it means to you or, or, or comment necessarily on what the other person said, except for clarification. Like yeah. they weren't supposed to say, well, what I think you should be doing, like it was, it was purely like they were collectively exercising individually. Yep. And that is something that definitely, like, it's a lot of validating of like, oh my God, I didn't think of that. That's awesome. But it is absolutely, yeah. Not it's correct. Not, you don't correct somebody. No, it's their work to do. And the other thing, so 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 the, the interesting thing about that is, is that they would also get together regularly. Like that was, yeah. do you, is when you get people together around a sacred, te- or around a text that you're going to like play with as sac- sacred, is it regular? Yep. So our Harry Potter class has been running. We're about to start our third year and it's weekly for an hour and a half. And when I did a Jane Eyre class, it was weekly for five months. Um, and Casper and I obviously do the podcast weekly and, um, yeah. And what we, you know, we hear from a lot of people who are like now on Sunday nights, I get together with my friend or I call my mom and we do this together. Um, so we def and we're now creating resources to teach people like, this is how you do Lectio Divina at home. This is how you start your own, you know, treating Harry Potter as a sacred text group. So, and what I love about it, if I understand it right, and I think I do, 
is that it's it's aimed at application. Yeah. The idea is is we're not just doing this to learn for learning's sake. We're doing this to make ourselves better human beings. Yeah. To to to, to build more loving relationships. To, to, to fight for social justice. Like, what is yeah. this text telling me that I can use to pursue my values? Yeah. And that is to discern my values, which values I really want to commit myself to, self to. Yeah. And then, and then how to live, live them out. Values. Live them out. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so, I mean, it's funny because when you leave Christianity, one of the things that pe- your old evangelical friends say to you is, but like, how are, like, without to be a good person well i mean that's i mean that's deep but then they'll also say like but you have no objective like without the bible without an objective like source code how do you know what's right and wrong and i'm sort of like well first of all there is no objective source code it's all subjective yeah Yeah. but the the second thing is is they'll say like what are you going to do without a book and i said like no 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 the difference between me and my friends and you and your friends is you have one book we have all books Right. And we, and I play with, I'm like any book I pick up, like I pick up the happiness effect about social media and I'm reading it and I'm asking just like when I would read the Bible, how does, what is this book saying? What does it have to do with my life? Right. How can I apply this truth to the business of being a better person? Right. And so if, do you feel like, does any book work just as well or are there books that work better? So this is a big fight on the team. And by big fight, I mean, we talk about it. Every a cool once conversation. Now. Yeah. Cool conversation. So I think, um, so we say that there are two requirements to teach a, to treat a book as sacred. One is that you love the book, that you have a natural affinity for the book. And that's just because if you're going to be committed to reading something week after week with rigor and have faith in it, and the third thing we say is to treat it in community, that's hard and it's a big commitment. So you might as well love it. So it shouldn't be a book you ought to read. Right. It's a book you want to read. It's a book you want to read, right? Hence, Hence Harry Potter for so many of your people. Exactly. Um, and the first book I did it with was Jane Eyre because it's my favorite book and it's an amazing book. I recommend everyone read it, but like whatever you love. And the other example I give is like my little brother does this with baseball, right? Like he's in real conversation with baseball. Um, so it doesn't even have to be a book. Um, we use the word like text very broadly, but, um, the other thing, so I say that it has to be complicated. It, um, and what I mean by that is that like four people should be able to read the same line and have four different opinions as to what the line means. And yeah, the other complicated, thing, like, like ambiguous. Or uh, just like another word for this that just starts to sound snobby is good. <laughs> it, it has to be good. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it, Ariana, our producer, makes a very compelling argument, which is like, well, if it's a milk carton and milk cartons remind you of the fact that like in the 90s, we like had missing children on milk cartons. And it also lets you think about capitalism and farming and right. Like, what do, do you know? I, I mean, do you know the story of Tycho Brahe? No. OK, so Tycho Brahe was this amazing early scientist like. 
you know, like before the scientific revolution, he was like, a, yeah. you know, and evidently a student came to Tycho Brahe and wanted to study under him. And the first day he came, Tycho Brahe put him in front, gave him a fish, a dead fish mm -hmm. and said, the first step in science is to make observations. So write down everything you can observe about this fish. Yeah. And left him there for eight hours. You know, the length, the height, the color, the number of scale, like they did. And so the student's like, here's my list. And it was way longer. I found out there were way more things to see than he would have thought. Yeah. So he goes home. He comes back the next day. And Tycho Brahe puts him in front of the same fish and says, do it again. Yeah. And for a month. And what the student real, at first the student's irritated. But then what he realizes is, oh, wait, the fish is decomposing. Yeah. Oh, wait, like the smell is different today. And he finds that there is an endless amount of observations he can make yeah. about this fish. And Tycho Brahe says, that's what I'm trying to teach you is that there's more to anything if you take the time to really look at it. Right. And so, and I take, so I think that that's beautiful. And I take that point about the milk carton. I think I don't know. I think the Harry Potter series is more interesting than a milk carton. But, um, and I, I do think that Harry Potter is uniquely qualified for this one because it's so ubiquitous. So you can, you know, so much about, about this is doing things in community and you can talk about Harry Potter with tens of millions of people. Um, and so that makes it special in and of itself. And then also just the messages of the book are like, can you so stop, can you stop on that first point for a second? Mm -hmm. Because it feels like that's one of the things that the Bible or the Quran, they're really helpful. Like when a Muslim moves to another city. Yes. They go like, they have this book in common. Yep. And, 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 and as secular people, we don't have very many books in common. Right. Um, and so in some sense, it feels like if you pick out Harry Potter, like, it, it's, it's a more likely candidate to be a book that, it won't connect you with everybody, but will connect you with a lot of people. Yeah. Especially under, under the age of like 40. Yeah. Um, and I mean, and that really strikes me, right? I was homesick while traveling once and it was the first, and so I went to um, Shabbat services at a temple and in Southern France and where I didn't speak the language. And um, it was the first time I appreciated that Jews pray in Hebrew I was like, even though I like didn't understand the like sermon in French, I knew all the prayers and the, like that was so comforting that it sounded exactly the same in Southern France as it did in Los in the temple I grew up in in Los Angeles. Yeah, and and sometimes it even works also on a smaller scale. You've probably seen this in your groups um, there at Harvard, like like Jane Eyre, like that connects you with you know millions of people. Um, yeah, at, but. But what's interesting, like in my, at, at USC, the second year I was there, I read this book by Jonathan Haidt called, uh, Hyde called, uh, The Righteous Mind, mm -hmm. Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics. And it's this, it's an amazing book. Uh, yeah. It helps you to understand people who think differently than you do. Mm -hmm. um, I can't recommend it more highly. Okay. Which is why I gave it to two of my students who were struggling with their relationships with Christians on campus. Right. 
and they were they were like it was transformative to them what i didn't realize was is that these two students were like evangelicals and so pretty soon that book is being like you, they would meet somebody and they go like you've got to read this book you've got so pretty soon people were like oh, i read the book just because like joey wouldn't leave me alone and um and so then it became a common language yeah where people would talk about the seven um, kind of moral instincts that they're evolved that it's science stuff that science, but everybody knew the seven instincts. Right. And so they it created an in-group language. Yeah. That I guess might've been a little bit off-putting to somebody else, except it's really accessible. All you have to do is read the book. Right. But it created a real sense of group identity. We've, yeah. all, we've all read this book. Like you're, yeah. you know, and, and do you find that that happens? Like if people interact around a text, it creates a sense of connection between them? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, and that's the other thing that's brilliant about Harry Potter is that it has, you know, you can identify as part of certain houses. And like there are all of these ways that people can identify it. I mean, a lot of it has its own language, right? People who aren't magical are called muggles. And so if I know the word muggle and you know the word muggle, we can sort of like talk about yeah, yeah. that together. Um, and I mean, I think there are like very few conversations that are more exciting than realizing that someone else knows a piece of art as well as you do and being able to like really talk about a piece of art with them. Yeah. Um, I mean, Ariana, who's sitting here is one of my closest friends and we both realized that we loved the movie, my best friend's wedding over the weekend and being able to like talk about that movie for half an hour and be like, but what's so brilliant about it are the different musical numbers that are in it. And like, just in talking about it with her, I figured out some new things about that. And, um, I, it's like such a point of connection and it's so intimate, right? Where you and the way see, Cameron Diaz wins the guy by being vulnerable because she sings, even though she can't sing and you, yeah, I'm, I'm in. Right. Yeah. We're friends it's now. So good. Exactly. It's a huge bonding thing. Yeah. And so, um, I mean, and I think like the, the churchiest experiences I have are going to, um, to live theater and it's right. Like you're going through an experience with people. Or, or have you been to one of those moth things or a storytelling thing? I ha I've been to very, I haven't been to an actual moth one, but I've been to similar type things. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, these are like deeply spiritual experiences. So I think that experiencing art in a group is very spiritual. So, so take me to like, I'm just a person and I, and, and I read about you or I listen to your podcast and I go like, I'm going to start a thing. Mm -hmm. What do I do? So we, have I think just like a PDF that you can look at and then we're creating more resources. But what you do is gather your friends, you set aside, we recommend an hour and a half a week, but some people can only do like two hours a month or, you know, whatever. So you set aside a time and a place and you invite whoever you would like to invite and you come together and we have like a series of rituals. So you start by doing something we call Dungeons and Tarot. Stop. Yeah. You invite. Yeah. Like, what do I invite you to? What do I say that we're going to do? I mean, we call it Harry Potter is a sacred text class. It's a reading group where we'll, you go through the seven books. Um, we recommend sort of like the school year. You go through all seven books in nine months. Um, 
Yeah. I just, I just meant like when I invite you over, do I say like, yeah. like if I invited you to Bible study, right? You would go like, whoa, whoa. You know, if yeah. if I invited you to a Tupperware party, you'd go like, oh, I got to bring my wallet. Like if I invited yeah. you to, to an Amway meeting, right? But like, how do I invite you? Do I say like, hey, I like if I said I want to become closer friends with you, like what is it that I'm inviting you into? Yeah. So that, I think we lose a lot of listeners by like the title of our podcast because it's called Harry Potter and the sacred text. And then I think people listen and are like, Oh, it's not as weird as I thought it would be. Mm -hmm. I think that the language is off putting for a lot of people. And I think that that is exactly the hard part. Um, I think you change the language based on who you're talking to, but it's a book group where we're going to really delve into Harry Potter. Yeah. It's funny. Like, wow. I, 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 can I try something? Cause yeah. Because like, like, I thought you would have magical language that would get people to come. No. Because I'm wondering if... like Harry Potter is the magical language. Like, people love Harry Potter. At, at USC, we were trying to figure out how we would meet people tabling on campus. Like, we would be, you know, we would have a table out there and we would be trying to invite people to anything you know like, yeah. or like it's freshman week and we're just like we're the secular student fellowship we're another option for you and kids right. were like what is this yeah and one of the kids ended up saying like well you know how like the christians get together for bible study and like they study like and they're trying to read the bible to try to figure out how to be better people they're yeah like, we get together and we study science or literature and when we have a conversation about how we can use whatever it is that we just read to be better people. And so they were like, so it's sort of like a Bible study, except we don't believe in God and we don't use the Bible. Right. And then people are like, oh, I know what that is. Like, it's a group right. of people sitting around trying to apply a text to their lives. Right. And so like, would it be fair to, some, to say to somebody like, look, if, if we were still Christians, we might do a Bible study. But like, we're not. So like what we do is we read a book together and we talk about how we can use it to make our, to, to make our lives better. Yeah. And that is sometimes what we say. I mean, it's, I, it, I think it just depends on the person, what resonates, right? When I walk into a hospital room, I'll say like, I'm the chaplain. And some people will be like, get out. But I'm like, well, I'm really just someone from the spiritual care department. And like that works for other people. And like, yeah. And sometimes you have, and sometimes you have to sell yourself, right? Like people are like, well, what does that mean that you're a chaplain? And I'm like, well, I'm the only person who's going to walk in here who you can kick out and who won't touch you. And they're like, <laughs> cool. And like, that'll get me in. Right. Whereas other people, you know, will be like, oh, you're the chaplain. Great. And they know exactly what that means. And they like have, a, and will immediately completely open up to you and be vulnerable. So I, I just think that these words have become so loaded. And so it's about meeting someone where they are. Yeah. And I think that I, I, but I, I know that you think that the word sacred text drives some people away and it probably does. I'm sure it does. But boy, it's very evocative of we're going to look at this text and we're going to be open to, to, to getting something out of it that isn't necessarily in it. Right. You know, because that's the thing, like when my wife would do Lectio Divina, she would do it with the Bible and she doesn't believe in the Bible. Right. But she's like, no, no, no. The Bible, is, the text was just a jumping off point to see right. what it would get me thinking about. The real message was in my unconsciousness. 
or was yeah. or was in my you know in, 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 it was really in me the text was just a like a lever to get it out yeah i sorry this is my dog hi um i yeah i think that I don't want to say the text is irrelevant, but the, the text is sort of incidental to the experience. What's sacred is like the setting aside of the time, the contemplation with the text that, um, we say, you know, we use as if a lot We we don't think that Harry Potter is in and of itself sacred. We think that we can treat it as if it was sacred. Yeah. It's funny. I've, I, I went once to the Getty museum Mm-hmm. Um, and they had a, a display about Abraham Lincoln and they actually had his hat. And I was standing there like a foot away from the hat. Mm-hmm. And it, I was like, I stood there for half an hour. It was like, I was, this was Ab- like, he wore this. And I thought that factory made a thousand hats just like that one. What makes that hat special is nothing about its, its hatness or its construction. It's, right. It's that he wore it and he used it and he made it special because he's special. And I sometimes think like there's nothing, the text is special if you read it and it causes you to like go and love your, your mother in a different way. Right. Then you go like, I love that book, but it's not, it's what the, it's what happened. Right. And that makes it sacred. So like the way you use something can take something that's, profane and make it sacred absolutely because it does something wonderful in your life right and i just i mean which is why i think it's important to do it with something you love because it's just gonna be easier to make it a sacred to make experience. That jump to make that jump yeah yeah so so then when people come they gather you've got a place and a time for an hour and a half and then like when you sit down in that like when you when you do it are you the leader of the group? Do you start the process? Yeah. So we, we call them facilitators. Um, and it was Casper and me the first year, and then we trained four people to do it and they are now training four new people to do it. And, um, it just helps to have someone who's like in charge of like timing and announcements and whatever. So we start with, you turn to a neighbor and share a high and a low from your week. And then we come back together and we do a three minute recap of the reading for the week so that the barrier to entry is even lower. So you don't have to even have done the reading to, um, to be there and be present. Then we just like have a conversation about what happened in the chapter and what ideas came up for us. And then we do two spiritual practices like Electio Divina and either Electio twice or, you know, electio in a sacred imagination or these other practices that we use on a particular passage. Yeah. We randomly pick the passages, believing okay. that sort of wherever our finger lands, that can, anything can work. Yep. And then we read a poem at the very end that has nothing to do with the class in order to sort of remind ourselves not to be fundamentalist about any single text. And then we say goodbye. And it's like a very, it's like a very easy ritualized thing. Damn. So. That's, I mean, the poem thing, I, I didn't know that. That's, yeah. that's genius. Thanks. 
It's a great excuse to read new poems. <laughs> but it's just also genius to like, don't get confused here. We're not saying Harry Potter is it. Yeah. We're not devotees of, J- we're we, we not trying to get our morality from J.K. Rowling. Right. She's just and what we're reading this week. Th- yeah. And um, yeah, so Ariana and I just did a class in Seattle and then we just did one in Los Angeles and we ended with Maggie Smith's poem, good bones, which is fantastic. And, um, yeah, it's just like great to, we've done in the class, we've done Keats and, um, and Emily Dickinson and, you know, all sorts of different things. So, wow. Okay. And so people are doing this, right? Yeah, they are. And, and, you know, cause I'm always saying like, people are always looking for community yeah. And and it seems to me that if there was a community like my my big fellowship that 10 people might go let's do this. It's a way to get closer. It's like a small group. Like it's a way to get yeah. closer to each other. Yeah. But that some people who are like I can't find a Sunday assembly or I I I can't start a big weekly gathering are like but they could do this. Yeah. And and and, and does it work like a fellowship? Do people get to be friends? Oh yeah. So our group here in Cambridge, we have had romantic relationships come from it, like real strong friendships, like visiting each other in the hospital friendships, roommates have come out of it. It's become a really close group. And we see that. We even see that at the live shows. We, um, we have, what's a live show. So we now do the podcast live. Um, we've done five shows so far and we have, three coming up in a few weeks on the East coast. And, um, we have people turn to each other and do a lot of stuff with strangers. So you do your check-in at the beginning with a high and a low with somebody who you don't know. And you do a couple of the spiritual practice steps in partners and people come up to us at the end of the shows being like, we swapped phone numbers and, um, or we had a meetup the day before our show in Portland and only two people showed up and then they came to the show together the next day. So like they became friends. So there's something about this process that like people bond and it's really lovely. Okay. And it's funny. Like I, I usually have a conversation with somebody. I feel like I'm interviewing you because I'm just so into this um, because I'm desperate to try to give people tools yeah. to connect and to feel less isolated in their pursuit of secular goodness yeah. um, or pursuit of goodness in a secular way. And, yeah. um, and this feel it's, I mean, it feels so intuitively like, It feels so intuitively accessible. Yeah. And so when I was still doing congregational work, I would, if somebody asked to meet with me, um, I would say, sure. And bring your favorite poem or bring your favorite essay. And if they sent it to me ahead of time, I would read it ahead of time. And then we would get together and we would just do Lectio Divina with the piece And by the end of it, you end up having this like amazing conversation with a person about where they are in their lives. And, and I find that sometimes people have a hard time opening up, but if you've just done a Mary Oliver poem about peonies and then you're like, well, it really reminds me of death. And you can be like, well, why does it remind you of death? Um, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That's so, I mean, like, I'm sorry to be like blowing uh smoke, but like, that's so brilliant. Like I'm thinking I have all these one-on-one meetings with people. And a lot of times in the course of the meeting, I'll be like, 
you should read this or let me quote you this. But sometimes it's hard to get in with a person. And I thought like, what if I was setting up a a one-on-one for the first time? Like somebody's coming to meet with me and I just say like, hey, just send me something that you like. Yeah. So then if the conversation in the early part of the conversation, if it lags or if I don't know where to go, I can go like, so that poem you sent me. Yeah. And you would have, and I'm thinking like, I'm trying to get all these people in these fellowships to meet with each other one-on-one and they're terrified to do it because they're like, they don't have that kind of natural thing that I've got where I like, I can just get Send people them talking. with a Mary Oliver poem. And just, but like the idea of like exchange something, say like, yeah. Hey, Hey, if we run out of things to talk about, here's something I just read an article, like our poems, just something I like. And even if the person doesn't read the whole thing, just even a scan. Yeah. Give you something to start with. And I would say, don't even wait for it to get awkward. Start with that. Yeah. Because what'll happen if it's going to be a natural conversation, you'll leave it. But in order to just like preempt it, be like, hi, I'm Bart. Hi, I'm Vanessa. Okay. Should we sit down with this poem? Great. Let's read it together real quick. Okay. And then just start doing like you Davina with the poem. I really like you skip the awkward. Yeah. And, yeah. That- and I mean, I could, I could see that. And I could also see doing the, my best friend's wedding thing where you just go like, I read your poem, Vanessa. And yeah. you know what, what I loved about it was this. And, and then you would immediately go like, yeah, well, you know, my mother gave it to me and this is why. And like, yeah. we would already, I'd know about your mom and you know, like we would, but just the idea of having a jumping off point for a one-on-one conversation. Yeah. I, I just go like, wow, that's, I mean, th- it was worth calling you just because I have so many people that like the one-on-ones that I have with them are very significant to them. Right. And they wish that they could do, but like, they're like, you have 30 years of training and sitting down with people one-on-one. You can just make right. that happen. And, and I, I'm often at a loss as to give them a specific, sometimes I give them questions to ask that will be good right. questions, but this is like a whole realm of possibility. It's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And the only reason I came up with it is because I'm awkward. And so I would have to meet with people and I'd be like, I don't know what to talk to you about. And so, and it's just like such a nice invitational thing. If somebody is, you know, I, a student wrote to me being like, can we meet? I was like, yeah, send me your favorite essay. And they sent me the David Foster Wallace, um, water. Yeah. Yeah. The the Oberlin college graduation speech. And, um, and I sat and I hadn't read it in years. And so I reread it and she was like, it meant so much to me that you took the time to read that. It's just and it's a like, clear sign of investment. Right. And I was like, well, it was really inter- Like it was interesting, you know, like it's I'll read. And so it's, I feel like it just works so well. And she and I met four times and we like talked about the essay. I say in quotes, every time we got together, we met for like 45, 50 minutes. And, but we talked, we ended up talking about, you know, that what she was really there for was to talk about the end of her relationship and you know, how she's sort of having a bit of a spiritual crisis at the end of that. And, I'm so pleased to meet you and likewise. And I'm so pleased that my friends who listen to my podcast are going to get to meet you Hi, um, and I will give them all the details of where they can find you online and how they can find your podcast and all that stuff. But I just, like, I'm just, I re- like, it is one of those moments where you feel like, wow, somebody has come up with something that's going to make my life and a lot of my friends' lives a lot better. 
And I, I, I just can't tell you how happy I am to talk with you. Thank you. Likewise. And I'll be in LA in like October. And so I'll let you know, we could get coffee or something. Beautiful. Beautiful. All right. That was me and Vanessa Zoltan. And I hope you liked it because I sure liked her. And I think this is hopeful stuff. I'm not going to, I'm not going to gild the lily by talking more about what I already talked about with her. I just want to tell you that if you want more of her, you can find her at Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Um, and that she's, there's a great website. She has a great podcast. And, uh, and if you want to find me or let me know what you think of this show or what you think of anything or just ask a question or check out the counseling and coaching, bartcampola.org is always there for you. Hey, there's also the Facebook page. The Humanize Me Facebook page, which is a conversation. So if you want to talk to people about this stuff, other people that are listening to the, the show, that they have a great conversation going on there. And, uh, and you know, if you're sitting there going like, damn it, you told me you were going to give me an Ingersoll quote. Where is it? Here it is. Robert Ingersoll, my man, says this. And, and it kind of is, it fits with what we just talked about. The great poets have sympathized with the people. They have uttered in all ages the human cry, unbought by gold, unawed by power. They have lifted high the torch that illuminates the world. Beauty is not all there is of poetry. It must contain the truth. It is not simply an oak rude and grand. Neither is it simply a vine. It is both. Around the oak of truth runs the vine of beauty. Yeah. The best, the best literature, the best poetry. It's it's beautiful. But if you look at it carefully enough from enough different angles, there's something more underneath. Ah, yeah. You're right, Ingersoll. You're so often right. And you're great, Humanize Me listeners. You're so wonderful. Thanks for writing to me. Thanks for letting me know you're out there. Keep, keep, keep your courage alive. We're not, you're not alone. We're together. There's lots of us. There's more of us all the time. Stay wonderful. Stay full of wonder. There is so much goodness to see once you open your eyes. Stay wonderful, and I'll see you soon. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit bartcampolo.org.